I begin this Sunday a three-week sermon series through the course of Advent, two Sundays in a row, and the third sermon will actually be Christmas Eve. This sermon is about the person of Christ and how we think about this one for whom we wait in Advent. The title is, Who is this Jesus? This week, we consider Christ over us. Next week, Christ redeeming us. And Christmas, Christ with us. Today, our passage is from the book of Colossians, the first chapter. This is a classic piece of scripture upon which a rather arcane and abstract doctrine of the church is often based. That doctrine is called the pre-existence of Christ. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about that in a minute or two. But listen to this passage. It is actually a hymn, which sounds more like a hymn in the original Greek. But listen to this passage that the Apostle Paul had a habit of when he couldn't describe something he was trying to describe, he reverted to a hymn, much like preachers sometimes do. And he would drop a hymn into a letter as if to say, the best way to say what we're trying to say is poetry, is song, much like in the church today. And so this is called the great Christological hymn from the book of Colossians, the first chapter. Listen for the word of God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to God's self all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. The word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Holy Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be receptive to thee. O God, our strength and our redeemer, we pray. Amen. It appears in the book of Philippians. It appears in the Gospel of John. There's a passage that talks about it in 1 Corinthians. Here in this text, it is the basis of what we call, that I said before, the pre-existence of Christ. What in the world is that? It is the idea that the very one we wait for, who was born in a manger in Bethlehem, who walked the streets of Bethlehem and Galilee, who walked to his death, his unjust execution in Jerusalem, who suffered for us, who healed us, who taught us, who was raised, we are told, on the third day, this very one who walked the earth 
was present at the very foundation of the earth, was present before all things were made, was present in, with, as God before the Big Bang, made all things, is in all things, will consummate all things, pre-exists, exists over, beyond, after, in, and through. A contradiction, that, isn't it? How is it that this one who was in a body, who we proclaim to be the teacher of God to us, is also God before us, and with us, and beyond us? The pre-existence of God in this one born in a manger in Bethlehem. If you've been reading the devotionals so far, you saw last Monday one written by our own Phil Branson here at Pinnacle, who describes this doctrine awfully well, even though he might not have been thinking about it when he did it. And he writes this, I adapted for this morning, try to imagine the whole of God's creation as a single powerful atom particle out of your high school science text. The idea of the pre-existence of Christ would place his word, his face, his will as the positive nucleus at the very center of it all. The light, the life, the power, the cohesive force. Always present, all-powerful, holding creation in balance from the very beginning. We would be the protons acting in a supporting, important but minor role, all working together necessarily for the common good, God's ultimate plan. Thanks, Phil the pre-existence of Christ. All right, let's set that all aside. I'm not so much interested in the history of this doctrine or what it means or its archaic Greek roots or the mythologies surrounding it in, the, in first century Palestine that made sense of it all. I am more interested today in not what it means but what it does. What does living in all of that poetry about this one we wait for in a manger do to us and for us and in us in the life of faith? What's it good for? Let me start with a story that has nothing to do with this doctrine at all, at least on the surface. A story from my days at university in a class that I took on the performance of literature. Now, I've told this story in a couple of small groups or classes at the church, but I don't think I've told it from the pulpit. It's about a poem that a young, very talented student in the class gave to this class of about 30 people one day in which she gave a, recited uh, and performed a poem about faces about all the faces that we use to make sense of our lives, by which we present ourselves to others. Think about all the ways in which you try to act yourself, or enact yourself, or be someone, something for others. All the people you've been throughout all of your life, all the ways in which you've costumed yourself, 
You've presented yourself, you've seen yourself, you've shaped yourself, you've changed yourself, you've tried to be yourself, the faces that make up our lives. And she took from magazines at the time pictures of all kinds of different faces. Faces with different skin colors, faces with different ethnicities, different hairstyles, different expressions of emotions involved in different things, faces. And made on the back of tag paper on a stick, made faces with, or sticks with faces. And somehow, I don't remember how, managed to put all of these faces in a line so that she could control them and move them. And as she recited this poem with all these faces in front of her, and all we heard was her voice, as these faces disappeared. One went that way. One went that way. One went that way. Face disappearing. Another face appearing. That face disappearing. Another face appearing. All the way down as we watched, as the tension got higher and the intention more quiet in the room, down to one face left. And the quiet was just like this. As she spoke this and then moved the face aside and everyone in the room in the whole auditorium gasped. It was just her. It was just the person we knew. She hadn't painted any clown makeup on her face. She hadn't done anything to her hair. All of her teeth were there. It was just her. And we all gasped. Spent the next 45 minutes talking about the gasp. Why did we gasp? As our instructor turned to us at one point and said, what were you afraid of? Were you afraid that nothing would be there? And everyone gasped again. Were you afraid that something would appear that would be grotesque? or odd, or unimaginable? What did you think would happen? And no one could answer. The doctrine of the pre-existence of Christ is for just such a moment. For that very moment in which each one of us takes away all the faces that we have used to shape our way of being in the world and removes the last to see what is there or who is there. The pre-existence of Christ reminds us that the one who is there is Christ himself. And we find our visage, we find our face, we find our lives, we find ourselves in conversation with the one who is at the heart of who we are, who is the same one who is at the heart and the beginning of all that is. We are because we are in relationship. There, when that face is removed, there is not nothing. There is who we are 
in relationship to the one who made us. The power of this thing that the T-Church has been teaching for 2,000 years about this one for whom we wait in Advent is that we need not gasp. For we need not be afraid that there is nothing there. We need not be afraid that there, is some, there may be something we don't recognize there or we don't approve of there or that makes us nervous or afraid there. We don't need to be afraid that all of the penultimate, all of the less than ultimate things in our lives by which we try to hook ourselves and define ourselves, who we, what we do or what we have or what we desire or who is in our lives or the narrative arc of all that we live with and want in our life, that all of those things that are not God but by which we try to make ourselves people, that all of those things are not the ultimate things that we don't need to put them in the place of God because God is always there in the face of Christ. The things of our lives that we cherish and value so dearly or the things of our lives for which we wish to flee or are afraid of or have negatively shaped us, all of those things are not God for us. They are created of God and in God and can be transformed in the love that made us when all the faces are removed. At the center is not nothing. And at the center is not even a self we're not sure we know. At the center is Christ, and we are in relationship with him because he preexisted all that is. Because the creation around us is exactly the same, transparent to the love that made it. The pre-existence of Christ helps us know that we are part of creation itself. For Christ is at the center before all things, redeeming all things, creating and recreating, firstborn image of an unimaginable God, powers and principalities, let me say it again, and forces both positive and negative, let me say it again, come after Christ, not before and not between. They are not more powerful. And he is the firstborn foundation coalescing and peacemaking in the church as in our lives. If we give these other concerns more power than we give to Christ, we kind of mess things up. Or at least we experience less of God than what God would want us to experience. Nothing you experience need define you except Christ. Nothing you experience need upend you except the presence of God. Nothing you experience need puzzle you except the surprising grace of God in Christ. Nothing you experience needs to leave you feeling alone unless you forget that you're not alone. 
Nothing you experience needs to destroy you because of Christ. During the years that I was a college chaplain, I would periodically have a student sitting in my office asking adolescent but no less significant or mature questions about the meaning of everything. Why am I here? What's it for? What am I doing all this for? Why am I trying to please my parents? I don't want to be this, I want to be that. Why? And invariably, the conversation would land at this question. Do you make yourself? Or are you made? Or is it a little bit of both? And if you are made, what makes you? Fear? A negative experience of childhood? Passion and emotion? Drive? Or love? The very love that was at the foundation of all things, that made all things, that created all things, that will be there at the consummation of all things, that will receive us when we die and knows us before we are. If there is a little hint of that in you, you're going to be okay. Because of this, you and I can enjoy the blessings of our life even more because we don't need to cling to them for dear life as if we are nothing without them. And we can make the ordinary days of life even more than ordinary because you know that nothing is meaningless. And you and I can endure the harder times and perhaps even be strengthened in them because we know that they are not the first word or the final word. That there is a love older and a hope newer and a meaning deeper and a presence stronger. The pre-existence of Christ is maybe the most empowering, life-giving, faith-forming thing Scripture will ever teach you because it reminds us that the very one whose birth into the world and into our lives that we will celebrate at Christmas and the very one whose teachings we will tend to all year and the very one whose suffering and execution and resurrection and peace-giving we will remember and wonder about and give thanks for at Easter, that one is the very one in whose love all creation rests, in whose love you also live and move and have your being, to whose love indeed again we will be received at our death, and for whose life we live our best, and because of whose love we can face tomorrow. We don't create ourselves. We're not in this alone. 
and we can live this life through it all for God's sake. Advent is a time when we prepare to accept that simple idea. We prepare to live a life that is a little less about no, or why me, or please help me get what I want, and a little bit more about yes, I am ready. What can I do? And to God, please be who you are at the center of who I am. Amen.